I want to set a bar for us as a people. But it's not my bar. It's God's bar. It's not a bar by which to judge yourself for saving. It's a bar by which to judge your congregation for Christians. It's common enough in American Christianity for people to say something like, you can't judge my heart. And that's true. I actually can't see your emotions, if that's what you're talking about. But the Bible doesn't really, well, it cares about your heart, but it, it doesn't want me to judge your heart so much as for you to judge your heart. And for you to realize that your heart and the heart of the world is not where it should be. It needs to be judged. And the way that it's judged, the way that we can honestly take assessment of our hearts is by our words. So I've said recently, the tongue is like the heart you can see and you can hear. So, so that's part of it. There's, there's the tongue, but there's also the body. If you say, I love Jesus, love him so much, he's my God, but you're never in church. You say, why aren't you in church? Well, I love Jesus on mountainside just fine. Oh, do you now? Okay. So Jesus says to gather with other Christians. Do you, do you just not believe what he says? Oh, oh I, I, they start to make excuses immediately. Excuses, excuses. And what you find out is that their love of Jesus is actually an excuse. An excuse for not going to church somehow. And how they got that through their head, I don't know. Huh? Maybe it's because a lot of the churches aren't worth going to. Fair assessment these days. Yeah? There's not a lot of Bible preaching going on out there. Paul wants us to believe that when you come together as Christians, you experience a different life together than you experience with people who are not Christians. And the primary difference is grace. Grace. Alone. That Christians are ready to hear. Christians are ready to listen. Christians are ready to comfort. Christians are ready to say, I understand. Christians are ready to say, I get that that's wrong and I love you. That's our, our common reality is grace. But what grace looks like, well, that's not just an idea. That's physical realities. And that's what Galatians 5 is going to talk about today. It's not so much going to talk about the physical realities that you have to try to do to make yourself a Christian. It's going to talk about the things that your body and your mind and your heart are going to want to do that because a Christian, you're going to start trying not to do. It's not that you're going to clean your heart so you're never tempted again by any of the powers of darkness. That is a disaster of a theology you will beat yourself to death. Instead, remember that you belong to Jesus entirely and totally. And he knows you're a sinner. That's why he died for you. And he knows your heart is filled with darkness. That's why he gives you words to say, look, the darkness is obvious. And you can go, yeah, it's obvious. And he says, but my spirit says, don't do that. And what this text is going to guarantee you today is that it's not even up to you. That, you're, that the Spirit of God is in you doing this for you, even against you sometimes. And we'll get there. That's right in that verse 16 and 17 that starts our text. 
But what I want to have is the kind of the big picture of all of this again, is that there is an expectation for us as Christians of a certain level of love that isn't just an idea you put on a bumper sticker with a rainbow that allows you to hate everybody who disagrees with you. Kindness is actually to act kind, not to say you're for kindness. And I would contend if you take a step back and start judging people's words by their actions together, you'll find out you got a lot of hypocrites walking around. And that's what we don't want to be. Christians don't want to be hypocrites. We know in the flesh we are. We know that on our own we are. But we also know Jesus has shined a light upon our dark hearts. And so that my hypocrisy is not all that I am, for he is risen. Hallelujah. And I'm not a hypocrite about that. He did that, not me. And the mind that he did that with, again, he says is yours for free. He'll give it away. The words, here they are. My son, listen, right? Proverbs, accept my words. That whole section in Proverbs is basically saying, will you please read the Bible? He's talking to Rehoboam. Solomon is talking to Rehoboam, his son. Will you please read the Torah? And, And as you know, I hope, didn't go so well. Rehoboam didn't do that. But of course, a young man named Jesus came along. He heard these words. My son, keep my words. He was like, yes, father, I will. Because he knew these words were power and life. And the kind of conviction and confidence that this age pretends to have in money and strength and might, but which actually crumples the moment any of those things glimmer or tweak for a moment. The craziest thing about idols is that you always have to protect them. You have to protect your gods from other people pointing out how they're false. The amazing thing about Jesus is he needs no protection from us. He's done it all on his own. I mean, where'd my Bible go? I just had it a moment ago. I was thinking about it just this morning. I mean, there were like 12 guys and like 500 people in Jerusalem. And they wrote some stuff down at like seven or eight, 15 churches around the Mediterranean. I mean, if I sent five guys, 12 guys, 15 guys out in the world and they wrote 27 letters, you think in 2000 years to be part of a giant book that half the world reads? It's amazing what this thing is. It's amazing how much we've forgotten about this thing. It's not one book, it's 66 books. Old and New Testament. An entire multiple, multitude of ages. People from various histories with worlds that were so different than ours and different than each other's. And they all confess certain truths that never go away. Never go away. Never change next week just because the three-letter organization decided. Instead, this word endures forever. So hear it. Hear it is the call. Yeah? I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the Luke text today, but I want to emphasize this this point. Uh, Jesus is away from Jerusalem. He's at a place where there are outsiders, where the people who aren't good enough to live in Jerusalem, whether it's for wealth or prestige or religious taboo, which is about prestige for people today too, believe it or not. Um, You can see it if you look hard enough. People who can't get close to the clean place, They're up in Galilee, kind of living the best they can, trying to get on. And lepers, we'll see lepers, these are people who really have something contagious, something that you can see, something you can test. You'll know if you catch it. It's really, really evident. And we don't have this problem so much today in this part of the world. Uh, But back then, the way they handled this was they just wouldn't let you go where they were. (laughs) Sounds familiar, huh? Um, They wouldn't let you go where they were. Now, 
the point of all of this is that these are people who are untouchable. These are people who are unapproachable. These are people who have their entire life gone already. Jesus heals them all. Ten guys completely healed. Send them down to the clean place, the priests in Jerusalem, so they can go back, be part of the society, go back to market, start having families and friends and all sorts of stuff they never could have before. And one of them along the way notices. He notices. It doesn't tell us the others noticed and kept going. So it's, it's common to condemn these guys. And like, I mean, yeah, they aren't the ones who understand. That's for sure. And it would seem that they're all Jews. It doesn't say that they're Jews, but they're living in Galilee and they're going to go down to the temple to the priests. I mean, only Jews really do that. Except the one guy who realized, wait, I'm not a Jew. <laughs> and it's amazing, though, the one guy who's not a Jew, what's the big deal that he figures out? He figures out that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the priest. He can go all the way down to Jerusalem to those other guys. You can realize, oh, he's right here already. Maybe it's not even that big a deal, though. Maybe it was just like, thank you. Wow, thank you, Jesus. What I know from all of this is not that you're going to be more grateful if you try hard. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. What I know from this is that seeing Jesus heal you makes you want to say, Alleluia. Mm -hmm. when you have a confrontation with your flesh we're going to talk more about that word your sin yourself when you know who you've been and what you've done when you know what you're capable of when you're struggling to let something go when you see that pain and those thorns and then you see that Jesus removes them you can't help but unleash praise to God. The question for the modern Christian church is what happened? Why is it so hard for us to praise God? In fact, we have great fights over praise. That's what we fight about best is praise. It's kind of strange. But it, it struck me. I said this to the guys in the back during the, the food time between services this morning. Like Lutherans once upon a time were known because we sang too much. All we did was sing. We had so many songs, we had to start making books of them. No one did that before us. But we figured out that the word in my mouth during the week as a tune is power over this age. Not just the tune. I'm in a tune. Whistle while you work. It's all very nice. But sing about Jesus being risen from the dead while you stumble on the ground and hit your thumb with the hammer and you walk through the weeds and whatnot. And you'll find that the weeds and the hammer aren't quite what you thought they were. They're not so bad. Because indeed, you walk toward a better country all the way. And the power to take this up in your voice, whether it is to confess it out loud to yourself, say, hallelujah, all right, or to sing it, to take home a song from church, memorize it, sing it all week, every day, make it part of your heart, right? That potency, that potential is something I want us as a congregation to get back. Yeah? I think we like to sing. We do, yeah? But we, we don't like to sing so much that we can't stop. You still want to stop and go home. That means that we haven't figured it out yet. Because honestly, if you're at a rock concert that you love, you don't want to stop and go home. Now, I don't want a rock concert here at all. I want us to sing. And I want us to love singing. And I want to ask, why don't we? 
Uh, separate question. It has something to do with, though, again, do you know what you've been healed from? When was the last time you thought about Jesus being your actual Savior? Like as in this week, this world sucks. Jesus, save me. Not for heaven, but now. Because that's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of God he was to these men. And by all means, the salvation he sends now most is the Holy Spirit to empower your mind with wisdom and your heart with praise to walk through this present evil whirlwind, no matter what it looks like on the outside. But he has with that the promise that this world, bad as it is, isn't going to be a whirlwind all the time. And he is the one with his finger on every single thing. And so if you are bothered by what you see, lift up your voice and ask him to change it. Because he loves you, you, personally, individually, you. I can't see what's in your life. He can. And he wants you to see that he does and that he has a better way called what the scriptures say, which again, it's just that Jesus is risen from the dead for you to pay for you, to make you immortal so that you will live forever. And that begins right now with a hope that no one else gets to have. Huh? That's what that leper was singing about. Huh? But to know your grace, you must know your sin. So let's try to get some of that out of Galatians here. I'm going to move text for a moment and jump to the New King James. If you have... Uh, your Bible with you, Galatians, is near the back of the New Testament, ah, near the middle of the New Testament. It's one of the medium-sized books. The New Testament goes Gospels and then letters. And then there's two sets of letters, but within them it goes from kind of longest to shortest. And so Galatians ends up in the second set of letters. They're from Paul, all right, kind of in the middle back because it's kind of short, but not too short. Um, so in any case, we're going to go from verse 7 of chapter 5. Now, uh, all the way down uh, through to some of chapter 6 today. So I'm going to be working in New King James up to our text that we heard read. Then I'm going to actually jump to the Greek, but it'll be closer to probably what you see in the ESV in front of you. And then I'll go back to New King James. So if, if you notice some differences in the words on the page and what I say, that, that's why that is. All right. So it starts out, verse 7, by saying you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's talking to the whole congregation. It's the end of a long letter. They have effectively rejected Jesus Christ. They have rejected Jesus Christ as a congregation. And he's written to them to tell them that because they are going to command circumcision be done by every male who joins their congregation, they are no longer going to be Christians after this. That doesn't mean that there aren't Christians there. This is very important. He's writing to the Christians who are there. And he's telling them that if you go that way, you will no longer be Christians. And he says, you were doing great. What happened? Who, who convinced you to change what you were doing? And I can say that, America. But Scopes Monkey Trial, generation and a half ago. And how long does it take to destroy a good thing? Goodness gracious. You were running well. What happened? Verse 8, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. So whenever the church is going to be divided, whenever God's people are going to be divided, over something that is not what the scriptures say, we hold on to at all costs, then that persuasion's from the devil. There's no other enemy, and there's no neutral parties. If you're not with Jesus, you're against Jesus. And the devil, let's, let's look back at, uh, let's look at the Proverbs again for half a second. We won't go too far here, but did you catch how weird verse 16 and 17 are in chapter 4? 
They cannot sleep unless they have done wrong and are robbed of sleep unless they make someone slumber. Now, I can't remember the last time I couldn't fall asleep because I was thinking about how much I hated somebody. I, I just never have had that happen in my life. But it says that's what happens to people. Now, I think some of it is like this. It's more that you're worried about something that's going to go wrong in your life and what you stay up worried about and then do action to to fix it, it ends up hurting someone else you don't even see. But if you'd just gone to sleep, God would have taken care of all of it. So I think there's some of that. But, but what I really want you to see here is behind those who accidentally do evil or intentionally do evil, either way, there are those who are by nature purely and forever evil. They're called demons. They do not sleep because all they want to do is do wrong. All they have is the malice to want to make you stumble. So the persuasion, Paul mentions, that is not from him who calls you. Words, stories, truth that's not truth because it's not from God. Does not come from God, but comes from the devil. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says. Remember, he's talking about the congregation. If you let evil teaching. If you let lies run rampant among you, then the result will be all of you will believe in lies. The proverb I plan to share with you another day at the end of the service, I'll give it to you now too. Proverbs 29, 12 says, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. A misled ruler who, who thinks the lies are the truth, the people below him, who know the lies are the truth, don't want to get in trouble. And so they'll act like the lies are the truth, and therefore they become wicked. And their conscience no longer is bothered by lying, because they have to for their jobs, for their bellies. It was said to me by someone very wise the other day, it's almost like they're asking us to put the masks on our eyes rather than our mouths. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 10 says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now, this is a lot of hope. This is a word to the Christians in the Galatian congregations saying that I know you didn't mean for this to happen. I know you don't want false teachers. I know they, use, they have used deceptive guile and sneaky might to do all of this to you. So, Repent and believe the gospel. Believe what I'm saying to you, Paul says, and recognize that the ones in your midst who would destroy the church, those who reject Christianity, those who come and say, does the Bible really say that? Or it says that, but it doesn't mean that. He will bear his own judgment. You know what that's about, right? That's last day talk. That's like, let him go. Because he's going to hell. That's some brutal talk right there. Really. What do we mean by such things? He who troubles you shall bear his judgment. Well, what we mean by such things is that what you do will be who you are. And so if you are baptized into resurrection, but you decide that the smelly death is worth wallowing in, and you just want it. I'm not talking about your being pulled. I'm not talking about your struggling and failing. I'm talking about, I'm going that way now. 
We'll talk more about what this looks like in a moment. But if you do that as an individual, if you do that as a congregation, it means you're outside the faith. And that doesn't go well. The, the love of God in Christ for all mankind, God so loved the whole world and gave his only son is in Jesus Christ. And outside of him, th there is no salvation. And you will be outside of him if you reject his words. Is that, is that straight up? Verses 11 through 12, he says, I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. It's a pretty complex paragraph. I'm not sure it's translated real smoothly. But the idea here is that the gospel of Jesus, the real truth that he has risen as a gift from God to you, is a scandal to anyone who doesn't believe it. It's an offense to anyone who doesn't believe it. It bothers them. They don't like the idea. They naturally hate it. And Paul says, that's why I'm being persecuted. It has nothing to do with circumcision. It's just the fact that I am pointing out that no one can save themselves and only Jesus can. And those who trouble you want to make much of you. They want to make you think you can save yourself. So you'll do what they say when they say to do it. And then they can feel like they're saving themselves. Follow that, I hope. But you are not like that. You don't have to build up your faith in yourself based on what you get other people to do. You, verse 13, were called to liberty. That means freedom. It's not quite the America Braveheart freedom. It's not quite that. It's more the integrity to walk in the freedom of conscience, knowing that whatever eyeball you meet, you have the confidence from Jesus Christ that you are sent to them, well met with them, an ambassador in the world, a child of God, Nothing to fear would be the main point of that. That you can walk at liberty anywhere, no matter what they say, because you know who you are in Jesus. Only, he says, do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And this is so important then. We're free. I say it every week, go in peace. You are free. When you go with your freedom and you find something that is evil, does the freedom we've been given by God to pull us out of that evil teach us to jump back into it? No. And so use your freedom that you have not to give in to the evil when you face it in your heart, but to gradually, by again, claw and bit and small journey through a valley, fight back against the evil. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. So verse 14, love your neighbor, means love the one near you. It means that not just over the fence, but at any time in your life, another human being that's near you is at that moment your neighbor, your nearby. So everything we can ever want to do as a congregation, as a family, as individual people comes down to the word love. It really does. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what's love? Especially right now. I can't think of a more malleable, silly putty kind of a word. It can mean almost everything. Like I said, love wins, and yet you see people with that on their shirt screaming at each other. So what's love? Well, love is going to be what he talks about next in our text. And that's what I want you to see, right? So if we're going to pursue love, what he says next is what we're going to not do. 
and what we're going to try to do, or, well, better, believe he will do. Let's not skip past 15, though. If you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. What that means for Christians and for all people, but especially for Christian churches, that if you as a group of people begin to try to get for yourself from each other here, you try to defend your, your pride, your, your money, anything. If you come here to be above others, then what will happen is others will devour you because that's the kind of life you live. And that's the kind of people you make when you share with others. That's what we don't want to be here then, right? Watch out, lest when you bite and devour, you eat each other up entirely. This has everything to do with how we talk to each other out there. It's everything to do with whether you look people in the eye and smile at them and welcome them and actually mean you're a human with pain. I want you here so Jesus can forgive you too. Or whether you're here for the program and the show, and for it to be just the way it always was, because that's the way it always was, and it's got to be that way again. I'm all for the way it really always was. My experience, most people say the way it always was, they mean like 40 years ago. And you go back 15 years before that, it wasn't like that. So that's why, again, what's the always? It's the Bible. It's what the scripture says again. And oh, here we go then. Our particular text, verse 16. Lego de numate peripatete. I say, he says, by the spirit walk and the gratification of the flesh, by no means will you fulfill. Now, in the English, it kind of sounds like an either or math problem. Now, you can walk by the spirit. Or you can gratify the flesh. It's not quite what he's saying. It's true. But his point here is more, you Christian only have one real option. I mean, it is a decision. It is a discipline. Your will will be involved in it. But there's no other option. But then to walk by the Spirit. Now, what does he mean by this? I'm just going to import it for you today. It means by the Bible. By the words that Jesus spoke out loud, which are in the Bible. By the words he sent men to write down that are in the Bible, right? Walk by the Spirit. By means of what the Scriptures say, your life is going to be shown to you every day. And the result of that, I open the Bible, I read about Jesus because he's my God and King. I pray to him because he says to just the way he says. I ask for wisdom and I see the way I should go. And lo and behold, indeed, my flesh doesn't get the upper hand in my life. That's a promise. Does it mean that your flesh will never be in need of repentance? No. Does it mean that you will never find trial and struggle? No, you're going to find more of that probably. It means you can stop worrying about whether you're going to go to heaven or not. You can stop worrying about, worrying about whether or not you're in the faith. You're in the faith. Do you have a Bible? Did you open it? Did you read it out loud? You're a Christian. Or you're with some pagan cult in some corner where they tell you Jesus isn't God, but that's not you. So why would you apply that to yourself? Uh, Walk by the Spirit, and the fact is you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Read your Bible. Pray the Psalms. Hunger for the Spirit, and you will find out that indeed you want to be a good person. And then, 
the works of darkness will be evident to you when they show up. Yeah, which is what he says next, right? Nope, nope, nope. We got a little interlude here where he talks about that this dichotomy, this, these two sides of what's inside of you, the spirit and your flesh, are at war with each other. So he introduces spirit and flesh in verse 16, right? But then in verse 17, he says, no, for the flesh, it desires or it gratifies, that's that same word from the previous verse, against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These things to stop yourselves, plural, in order that not you'll be able to do what you desire to do. It's loose translation. But the idea here is that you have two things going on in your body as a Christian. Non-Christians only got one, the flesh. The natural man, the old man, who Adam's DNA is in your heart, mind, and spirit. You have that reality, and that reality hates God. Hates, hates vehemently, maliciously. It's like, I love God, but not that one. <laughs> it's always wanting to change God, tweak his nose and make it look more like ours. That flesh is you born of your father and your mother. But you also have something that is not that. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God in you. How can I say such a thing? What a profound and audacious thing, because that's the promise of Jesus, that he will give the Holy Spirit to anybody who asks of him. So if you haven't asked, I mean, you just said the Apostles' Creed a little while, or Nicene Creed, so you definitely have asked. You definitely have asked. So you can know that this spirit of God is also in you. And this spirit of God that's in you according to the name and promises of Jesus hates the stuff your flesh does as much as your flesh hates him. And so inside of you, you've literally got two wills at war. Your own natural one that just comes out of you. And the Holy Spirit's one that gets poured into you by the words of Scripture. The words of scripture get poured into you against your will to stop you from doing what you want to do, it says. That's the evil. To stop you from going the way you want to go and destroying yourself. So to see how important that is, God's work in you is not to make you great, it's to make you not wicked. The change a Christian experiences in life is not victory over everything, but victory over not doing things. It's not that I'm going to achieve forever. It's I'm going to stop hurting so much else. Verse 18 says, But if you are in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So before he goes into our list of things to see as evil, he reminds us this is not a law. This isn't your checklist so you can get it all done. I, mean, I didn't do these things. I'm a good Christian now. No, no, you're, you're really missing the point of this. There is no like perfect list of rules about how to be and do. There's Jesus giving the fact that you're saved. And then there's seeing that that evil that you can just naturally do, you don't want to do anymore. And the evil's obvious to see. The good's harder to see. But it's promised to be the more you turn from the evil. Yeah? You're not under the law. You're not going to make this happen. This is a promise. Jesus is going to do this to you. All right. So then, let me double check our text in the English real quick. Make sure I know where I am. Yes. So, verse 
19 begins with this extended list of things that are evident works of darkness. Let's see here. 19, the, the word is phanera. You can hear like epiphany, the season of epiphany. Do you remember what that means? Anybody? It means to reveal or to show or to put light on something. So phanera means evident, obvious. You can see this thing. Evident are the works of the flesh. Evident are the works of the flesh. So everything we're going to talk about now that we want to try not to be, we're going to find in our hearts all the time. What Paul wants us to do is to try not to do it to each other or alone by ourselves. Because those are the things when we act that will destroy us together. Yeah. So here they are. And again, these should be things that are obvious, but in the English, not so much, right? Sexual immorality seems obvious, I suppose. It's not nearly as obvious as the Greek word is. Uh, the New King James calls it fornication. Fornication. Okay, sexual immorality. Something to do with sex that's wrong? Yeah, that's what it means. People don't talk like that. Fornication. That basically means adultery, a man and a woman doing things together that they shouldn't do together. It can mean homosexuality, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Okay, so... The word in the Greek there is porneia. Porneia. It's such a powerful word, I think it needs no explanation at all. You know it when you see it. And it's not just what you view on a screen. It's living that way with multiple people. Or bouncing around or not understanding, again, what marriage is for. So Paul doesn't come here and say, well, don't move in with your girlfriend. He doesn't come here and say, don't be a homosexual. There's places where that's talked about, but he puts it all under one bucket here. And the word porneia, it's got an interesting history. It means prostitute. It also means slave, because they were. And then it means a way of seeing people as sexual objects. Now, we got this in the water in droves in America. Everybody's judged by how they look. You know it. Pornea. That's one. Next one's impurity. The word's akatharissa. It means to be unclean. That's what the KJV says. The ESV says impure. Same idea, but neither of them give us what they're about. And I don't even know how to tell you what they're about. Because it means ritual uncleanness. The closest we got to this is when we tell our kids to wash their hands before dinner. It's like the closest we get as a culture because we're a culture without honor. If we were a culture with honor, we would understand the need for ritual honor, ritual cleanness, but we're, we're a shameful culture. We boast in our shame. And so it's hard to describe. You know, for the Jews, there were all sorts of things they would have to do before they would go into worship together as part of their, their ritual. Um, for us, I mean, it's not quite the same as, you know, if someone threw a guitar up in here on, on the, by the altar as a stage, I mean, we would call that akatharissa at St. Paul because it would be so against what we do that everybody would lose their minds over. What is going on? Why did they do that? That's the idea as a spirit, right? That we're trying to retain our order together. And akatharissa breaks that. You know, dishonor and never dealing with honor breaks that. The third word, it's sensuality in the ESV. Um, lewdness in the New King James, neither neither come anywhere close to what this word's about. Sensuality, I mean, how would you try 
avoiding the sin of sensuality. I mean, someone make a list. It's, it's just a, it's a nonsense word almost. Um, lewdness sounds like it's about sex and it kind of can be that way. But the word is about your, the weakness of your person to do something that you believe is good. Impotence is the best straight word I've got. I'm going to, oh, I can't. Impotence. Or, you know, you know, when they say, hey, will you please go deal with that thing over there? And I just don't feel like it. And so you don't. That's this word, asalgeia. Uh, the impotence of your heart to do good. Pornea, akatharissa, asalgeia. First three. There's 15, 16, depends on how you count them here. The next one is very common. Everyone knows this word, idolatria, idolatry. We've all heard this word. But how many of us need to repent of idolatry? Like, actually, like how many of you have idols at home that you worship? Now, everyone's going to say, well, we don't. And I would say, yeah, it's probably true, kind of, except for that we don't even know what it means. What would it mean to worship an image? If you've got a statue at home, what does it mean that it's an idol or not an idol? Huh? How would you know the difference? The difference is that a Christian can have a statue. Nobody else can. Anybody else has a statue, it's an idol. There's lots of idols in people's yards around here. Why do they put them there? For spiritual reasons. We should talk about it sometime. You'll find they believe the daftest things. Gnomes and whatnot. This is crazy. Anyway, idolatry. It's not about the statue. But if you don't have Jesus to point you to true worship, well, then you're going to worship whatever image you set up. And that's what idolatry is. That's why St. John says at the end of 1 John, don't do it. It doesn't mean don't have pictures, but it does mean recognize well, how deceptive they can be to you. We'll leave idolatria here for a moment and move on to another one. That's This is probably the hardest one to talk about. Because the Greek sounds just like something today. That kind of is the same thing today, but kind of isn't at the same time. So the Greek is pharmakeia. And you can hear the word pharmacy or pharmaceutical in pharmakeia. And what the pharmakeia would do in the ancient Greek world is they would make potions. And they'd take this and that and this and that. They put it in. They give it to you. And say, now this will happen to you. Now, back in the day, this would have been very connected to, say, witchcraft, voodoo, all manner of other things. You know, uh, hallucinatory drugs that are used to throw you off while it's happening, like the Oracle of Delphi, that kind of thing. So it's not like Tylenol. Until it is. And that's where the line, again, is kind of like the line with statues. Like, Christians can take Tylenol. But, I mean, if you can't live in a world without Tylenol, you're a pretty immature Christian. If it's that scary to think about, what if the pharmaceutical industry is wrong? Like, we can't even question them anymore. And and that's a nice place to tangent here. We're going to talk about murderers in a moment, too. But I do not want to leave this unsaid. This week... Uh, in the news, Texas did something quite incredible. They got past the Supreme Court, a law in Texas that makes it so you can sue abortion clinics in your neighborhood if you don't want them there. They went around the whole system. They went to the civil courts. You can sue them out of business. It's genius. And the Supreme Court upheld it. That day, Joe Biden said, The Supreme Court's overnight ruling is an unprecedented assault on constitutional rights and requires an immediate response. We will launch a whole-of-government effort 
I thought there was just an executive branch. I, I get confused sometimes. A whole of government effort to respond, looking at what steps can be taken to ensure that Texans have access to safe and legal abortions. Uh, this document over here, which again, I, <laughs> it's so sad, but this document here from Calvary's Presbyterian Church and its members concerning coerced acceptance of COVID-19 vaccines, you can Google it and find it. It makes it very clear that there is no way to take any one of these inoculations without in some way being tied to the abortion industry. And while that doesn't mean you can never, ever, ever do anything that ever comes from one of these companies, you might not want to. That's a different topic. But it certainly means that you shouldn't just stick anything in your body because someone told you you should. It, it, you just shouldn't. You need to know, is it from dead babies? I mean, I care about that a lot. And I can tell you that while the mRNA vaccines are not made by dead babies, they're tested on dead babies. They're tested on dead babies. That alone, getting lost in the whirlwind of everything else we're talking about. Where's the, where's the cry about abortion, even as we get a victory in Texas? We should be crying out about this. They have scuttled this into us now, and now they want booster shots of it. Think about it. It's not about what it's about. Pharmacaea, potions, promises of eternal life from elixirs stirred up by men with greater minds than your own. Paul says evident work of darkness. Again, I don't find it so easy to walk in this one today. And by all means, don't go throw your Tylenol out just yet. Maybe just pick up this document and figure out where the abortions are really being done in your local area. By the way, St. Paul, we got ours closed. You remember this? We've told this story. Ours was down there where the police station is now. It was closed. You better believe those boys down in Springfield want it back. It's right by fairgrounds where the black kids are. That's what, that's what Margaret Sanger wanted from the beginning. You can go Google, search up Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, and her ideology. And she started it to reduce black people. She's a wicked woman. And they're still running her system because when a wicked man, or excuse me, when a ruler listens to wicked, I'll say it again better, when a ruler listens to lies, all his servants become wicked. Yeah? We have to learn how to be people of the truth. Okay, I've taken us a long way today and we're barely through this list, so I'm going to zoom. Ekthrai, the next one, is an inner hostile spirit. This is contentiousness. This is that I am just grumpy. I'm not easy to talk to myself. I'm hard to approach. I know that. I'm scary sometimes. It's because I have a lot on my mind. I'm walking around like this. What I've been learning is, though, like, I don't have to let my face do what my heart says. Especially when I see somebody else, I can be like, and I can smile. And as, as fake as that might look, thanks for the laugh, Amy. Um, sometimes it's that, you got to start that way. You got to start that way. So again, uh, what kind of people are we? Are we the people who come in? How are you doing this week? Or, how are you doing this week? It's good to see you too. Works of darkness are evident. When people are contentious, it's evident. Eris, the next one, is a bickering spirit. It's similar. It's like having a quick tongue. Ready to correct. Ready to jump in and tell people why they're wrong. Yeah? Uh, that's that's uh, Eris. Zelos, zeal, jealousy. This is an uncontrolled will. This is like, oh, I gotta go do it. Oh, I'm gonna go there now. Because whatever you feel is all, all the time. I got this one too. Big, big challenge for me. But again, are we talking about heart or action? So when I find it in my heart, it's the time to say, how am I acting? 
And do I want to change my action and not listen to this thing my heart says, which is go fast, be zealous. The next one, envy in your text. um, There's a textual issue there. I'm not going to talk about it. Envy is bad. But after that comes murderers. And I want to mention again how killing babies so you can live forever in potions is murdering. That's important to know. But the idea of the, the, the murderous person, oh, I lost that card there. Here it is, is more along the lines of bloodthirstiness, right? Quick to shed blood, ready to think that violence is the answer to everything. So murderers, and after murderers, you have the methi, the alcoholic drunkards or the inebriated peoples. I thought a lot about how to teach drunkenness to you this week because it's, it's just not that easy. I mean, if you have a beer, if you go down to Prairie Street, you get a pint, you're going to feel warm by the end of it. That's not what's being forbidden here. What's being forbidden here is to be out of control in your mind and body because of anything that's put into your body. To lose the ability to be yourself with others. It's the opposite of self-control. And absolutely, if you drink three to five beers, you're probably going to be reaching that tipsy point. Yeah. But it's methe. You can hear like the, the beginning of methamphetamines in here. It's also about any type of drug that's intended, again, to make you forget everything, to make it go away, to go to some other place. And that's where uh, methe can rightly be applied in some ways to fantasy thought, too, on different levels. Komoi, that's the Dionysian party. This is the way the Romans used to do it. I mean, think a rave or something like that. You know, you all get together, you all get as high and drunk and as out as you can do, and then who knows what happens. They were so good at this back then, they would have food laid out for spread, and they'd have a room for you to puke in. So you could eat, go puke, and come back. That's the word. Now, I, I don't know that you're doing that at home. We definitely don't want to do that at St. Paul. What we want is to hear that all these works of darkness are evident. And that, honestly, and you, you can hear the common sense in it. The way we treat each other as a people is going to matter. And that goes for your neighborhood. It goes for your town hall. It goes for you to talk to the people at the hospital who are as scared as you are. We want to be the kind of people that bring light into darkness. And that's where then what it says next, you know, well, ah, I want to get to the light of the darkness. I want to get to the spirit. The end of the verse, though, I can't ignore it. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. So, pornea. If you go to a church that teaches that all forms of pornea are okay, they're just a way of loving each other. Now, just the, the, the new way we understand now. So what is it? Cohabitation, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, polyamory, divorce. All of these things are things we're supposed to try not to do. And if you go to a church, it's like, don't worry about it. And Paul says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God to that church. What do you inherit? Everyone wants to think, oh, that's heaven. No. I mean, yes, but it's already here. What's the kingdom of God? Keep reading. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We can talk about all of these as much as I talked about those other words. Don't have time today. But what I want you to see is he's not saying, don't do these things or else Jesus will get mad at you and kick you out of the church. That's true, but that's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, if you let yourself be led astray by these things, then you won't experience love. And you won't experience peace. You got too many dissensions going on. You know, you won't be able to experience self-control. You're too busy being impotent because you're drugging yourself all the time. Christians must live from Jesus and not from everything else. You are. That's why you're here. That's why he keeps giving you words like this that you can swallow even when they're hard. Yeah? So that you may know again that it's obvious that the world's in trouble. It's clear what the darkness is. It's also clear that he is risen. Alleluia. And so you can walk through all these things even as they tempt you, they taunt you, and they try you, knowing that inside buries in Jesus and outside is a new person alive and waiting for a better world with knowledge of how to deal with it here. Ah, it begins with the spirit of self-control, the one which says all these things are worth pondering. So maybe I'll put a bookmark in my Bible right now, go home this afternoon and look at it again. Yeah. I want to talk about one of these. Um, uh, we're going to stop at that point. We're going to talk about one of these fruit of the Spirit. I didn't get a chance to look them all up this week. Those other 15 took me plenty of time. Uh, but the, um, the one that's translated as kindness, kindness. It's a fine translation. It means that, but it means more than just kind. I mean, you think of kind and you think of nice, right? And that's true, but it's a certain kind of nice. So if you go and you look at, like, say, let's just say the Eiffel Tower. Eiffel Tower. Got these, these lines that move together in this shape and this structure. It's nice. It's kind? Well, you wouldn't say that, but that's this word. The word Christotes. What it directly means is upright or straight. But it also, by that, means that when you walk away from somebody, that's how you walk. When they are crestates, you walk away upright. They were straight, you're straight. They were kind. You feel good. And that's the word. Uh, it's quite a thing. Uh, to see kindness as being just standing up and looking at people with honesty. And again, the promise is here is that Christ Jesus has achieved all this for you. He sent me to you to be the best that I can be of this to you, but he's also sent you to each other and you to me. So that together, in the whirlwind, we can keep singing about the truth of the world to come. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, let's uh, rise then for prayer. Amen.